Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. We, as usual, are taking a break from format today to review a comic that is a little bit older in the lexicon. We do have some appearances of the uh, X-Men in the Fantastic Four along the way. Uh, today we're going to be covering Fantastic Four number uh, 36, which is from March 1965. It's classic Stanley Jack Kirby with uh, Chick Stone on inks and Artie Simic on letters. It's the first appearance of not only the Frightful Four, but also Medusa, and it's a blast. So we will get there in a few minutes. And it's, and it is uh, X-Men adjacent. Before that, I am thrilled to welcome uh, my friend Gabriella Garbero back to the podcast, as well as two new friends, uh, uh, both Marcus Onnasso and Sandy Plunkett. Uh, I'm going to let you each introduce yourselves briefly. Let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from professionally. And uh, the question for everyone during introductions today is if you could have the powers of one of the Frightful Four in your real life, who would you choose? And your options here being the wizard, Sandman, Paste Pot Pete, which <laughs> is I'm going to laugh every time I say, and uh, and also Medusa. Uh, so let's start with uh, Sandy. Sandy, if you'll go first, please. Welcome to Gray Malkin Lane. Hey, thank you. Um, tell me your first question again. I was already oh. thinking about the thing. <laughs> I ask a lot at once. Yeah, so just uh, your gender pronouns, where people would know you from professionally, and then the uh, Frightful Four question. Okay, he is fine. Um, if you're old enough, if you'll remember my work at, uh, on comics, mostly in the 80s and 90s. Um, never did a regular book for Marvel, but I did special projects, inventory issues, mostly as an artist. Also did some writing, uh, some coloring as well. And uh, which powers uh, from, the Fantastic, from the Frightful Four would you choose in your real life? Well, here's the thing. There's only two with real powers. His pot Pete has, you know, a bunch of gimmicks and uh, the wizard who's real smart, not exactly a, a superpower. So I go with Sandman. That's kind of cool. Sandman is a, is a force to be reckoned with. Agreed. Uh, Gabriella, would you like to go next? Yeah, I am Gabriella Garbero. My pronouns are she, her. And uh, I have a blog called The Girl Who Sits where I talk about disability and um, I have an article about X-Men on there. So you should keep that if you like X-Men, which you probably do if you're listening to this podcast. So um, and my honestly, before I even knew you were asking this question, I was going to tell you a story about how when I was in, well, it was only like a couple of years ago, I had super long hair, like Madame Medusa, and it got everywhere and I hated it so much. But then I cut my hair and I I miss it. So I feel like I want to say Madame Medusa, but I know her head hurts because it's heavy. And I feel bad about that. I know it's got to be really uncomfortable. Um, but I, I still say her, you know. I mean, we'll, like talk, we'll talk about Medusa today, but I think part of her power set means that she has to have like extra strong neck muscles. Amazing. You need them. You need them when you have hair that long. I, I mean, just, just the cover of this issue alone. We'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll love that cover. Uh, and then let's go to Marcuson. Hi, Mark. Uh, Mark Marcuson or Mark? Which do you prefer? It's Marcuson. Yeah. Okay, Marcuson. I used to go by Mark when I was little because you didn't want to be different, but uh, that changed a long time I ago. I like how so. I just I just gave you a nickname with like barely needed. You're like, hey, welcome. <laughs> yeah, people call me all kinds of stuff. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. 
Um, I'm a writer. I, I write a comic book right now for Scout Comics called By the Horns. It's about a hunter named Elodie whose husband is trampled by unicorns and she swears revenge against all the unicorns on the continent. But then she finds out there's an even greater threat uh, than unicorns out there. And so she actually has to team up with a couple unicorns um, who don't know that she wants to kill them and she can rip off their horns and merge them to form mystic weapons. Oh my God, I'm going to be ordering this book. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's doing really well for Scout. We're on the, the second volume. We did the first eight issues, uh, Buy the Horns, out in trade paperback, and now we're doing Buy the Horns, Dark Earth, which is follow-up. It's basically just continuing in the series. So hopefully we get to do it for a while because we have five arcs planned. Mm. So, And then I also have written uh, Voracious um, for Action Lab. Um, that was three volumes, and uh, it was about a, a chef who travels through time, kills dinosaurs, and serves them at a restaurant in the present. <laughs> Wonderful. So yeah, that was three volumes, the complete story. That was my first comic ever did with my buddy Jason. And Jason and I are doing By the Horns together. So it's been really fun to do comics the last few years. And uh, I'm also uh, a podcaster too. So I'm a host on the Metalheads podcast. And um, every month we uh, do a really long form podcast, like five hours. We have, we have guests on, uh, musicians, bands. And uh, we have a format where we do like top five. And um, of course, we do an interview with the bands and uh, um, talk about new releases. And it's been a blast. I've been doing that for, I think, since, since 2018, actually. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. And uh, the power I would choose, I definitely would go with Madam Medusa. I like <laughs> that she's introduced as Madam Medusa. I got to go with that hair because I'm a metalhead. If I had that hair, I would just whip it around and of course those amazing neck muscles would be perfect for head banging and then lastly i'm chad anderson i use he him pronouns uh my my listeners already know but i'm a formal marvel comics handbook writer i work as a therapist in my day job uh, my husband and i are raising two kids here in salt lake city uh, i'm also a documentary filmmaker and an author uh but now i do podcasting with about 50 percent of my time and i have a great time uh so marcuson and i met recently on uh twitter of all places and had some lovely conversation i'm like oh my gosh uh, come come on the podcast which I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on and uh sandy let me tell you a little bit about my journey to you uh i uh i do a lot of interviews on the podcast and i do a ton of research in old comics and a few months back, we did some focused episodes on uh, the Scarlet Witch. And when I reread her entire chronology, I came across uh, your story with her in uh, Marvel Fanfare and was so impressed by your beautiful pencil work. Uh, and then uh, and then I kind of tracked you around a little bit and realized you were also uh, one of the artists that worked on the original handbooks, which is one of my favorite yes. books of all time. Uh, so I, uh, I just kind of randomly sent you an email and you responded and I'm thrilled that you're here. Uh, okay. If we could just kind of open, Sandy, tell us a little bit about your professional journey as an artist and how you kind of wound up doing comic books in the first place. I'd also love to hear what else you've worked on. Okay. Um, try to be brief <laughs> because it's a long story. Uh, I got into comics when I was in third grade, and this is back in the mid-60s. And it was a good time because this was when Marvel was really hitting their stride. And I had read comics, but... Marvel comics were the first comics I read that really drew me in. Um, somewhere at the end of sixth grade, I just got it drummed into my head that I was getting too old for comics. I should throw out all the old comic books and get serious, and I did. But then maybe 10th grade, 
I had a change of heart. I'm not really sure how that happened, but all of a sudden I decided it doesn't matter what other people think. I'm going to read comics. And that's also when I first started to think about drawing comic books professionally. And I was pretty lucky. I lived in New York City, just a few blocks from a man named Larry Ivy, who had been in comics, both professionally as a fan in the late 50s and through the 60s. And I took my work to show him, and he very nonchalantly went through the pages I brought, said, yeah, I think by the end of high school, you'll be ready for professional assignments, which I was not expecting to hear, but I started to take it seriously. I went to college for a year as a fine arts major, somewhat skeptically, because I didn't really think they'd be able to teach me too much about comic books, and I was right. Um, I went back for a second year just to see if I was really sure I wanted to drop out, and I did. Um, Dropped out, spent a couple months uh, developing a portfolio, uh, set an appointment with Archie Goodwin, who at that time was editing the black and white books. He was sharing an office with Marv Wolfman. He liked what he saw. Um, He gave me, over the course of a couple months, two assignments, a pinup for their zombie book and a front cover for Savage Tales, who was storing uh, Hazar at that time. Um, at that point, it wasn't really a clear glide to success because it was the late 70s and comic books in general were doing pretty terribly. There wasn't a whole lot of work out there. So I bounced around. I picked up some work at DC, some work at Gold Key, which was a, a company that aimed for more a younger audience. And I also landed in Continuity Studios, which was a studio run by Neil Adams for commercial purposes mostly. He was doing comic books, of course, but he was also doing commercial art. And Continuity was a large space that rented out studio space to other artists, mostly guys around my age who were breaking into the industry. And I never rented space there, but I picked up a lot of work, often doing assistant work um, and also advertising work, which really helped pay the bills while I wasn't getting much in the way of assignments. Um, Fast forward to about 1981, and uh, Al Milgram gave me a script. It wasn't a script, a plot, but Mike Barr, uh, that was meant to go in Marvel 2-in-1s. But by the time I finished it, he had also created the title Marvel Fanfare. Mm -hmm. So they switched it to that book. Um, Craig Russell did an absolutely beautiful job of inking it. And uh, the market improved. That one issue garnered a lot of attention. And from there, I was getting regular work from Marvel and here and there and other, from other companies. And the issue, uh, the issue you're yeah. referring to, we can talk about in a second. But that, sure. was, that was your Spider-Man Scarlet Witch story? That is correct. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I just reread it yesterday. It's really beautiful. Um, I have to say, Mike Barr was great to work with. Because he basically said, Hey, is there something you feel like drawing? And I said, hey, I'm comfortable with fantasy. Give me something Doc Strange like. And uh, one of my favorite comics from my childhood was the second Spider Man annual where Spider Man teams up with Doctor Strange. 
So all the imagery is just what I felt like drawing. So I didn't have to stretch myself too much. Um, so that was great. Marvel has gone through a lot of editorial changes over the years, but we will generally see at some period uh, in their publication history, in every period, I mean, there's some sort of anthology book or place where it's uh, kind of safer to try out new talent. Uh, we see this in like Marvel Comics Presents. It's like eight page stories uh, at a time, uh, which Sandy, you also worked on. Marvel Fanfare is a, a great example. Marvel Graphic Novel uh, where you will sometimes, for our X-Men fans, you'll sometimes find pretty epic X-Men stories uh, in unfamiliar places. You have to kind of go look for them because they're not part of the main title. But often some of this uh, are people who are really at the top of their game doing just gorgeous, gorgeous art. Uh, we even see this in places like uh, like the Spider-Verse side titles that they've had in the last few years. Uh, so it's always worth kind of looking up in these other spaces, places where you may find uh, find the work of uh, people who are really doing beautiful things. And when you're not in the main title, often you can do things that are unexpected. You can take characters to places that you wouldn't uh, always be able to get away with otherwise. Uh, you referenced Archie Goodwin. Uh, uh, it sounds like you had a good working relationship. Our, our, our audience may not know Archie well, but he was uh, editor-in-chief of Marvel in the late 70s for a period of time. Uh, died, I believe, in 1998, I believe. Uh, but I hear pretty lovely things about him. He's uh, he's really well associated with um, uh, with like the the creepy and eerie comics for Warren comics that were done back in the day, and like the Marvel's epic line. Uh, tell us a little bit about working with Archie, Sandy. Um, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anything about Archie that just wasn't glowing. Yeah, um, he was an excellent writer. He might have even been a better editor. And he was just one of these really genuinely sweet, thoughtful human beings. Um, I worked with him on Epic Magazine. Uh, <laughs> if I ever ended up visiting Marvel around lunch hour, he would pull out his uh, credit card <laughs> and we'd go out to lunch, which certainly endeared him to me. <laughs> um, he was just a sharp, extremely witty, very kind man. Uh, thank you for sharing those memories. Uh, I've heard nothing but lovely things about <laughs> yes. him uh, as I've gotten to know people in the industry. Uh, before we delve into some more specific questions about your art and work, Sandy and, and uh, Margazan, I'd actually love to hear from you on this as well. What's it like to make it as an artist? Uh, I know it's project to project. I know you're kind of paid per rate. Uh, what do you have to do in a uh, in order to survive as an artist uh, during whatever time you've been uh, working actively in those spaces? Uh, Sandy, do you want to go first there? Sure. Um, I think that my story is a little different from other artists because I've always worked slow, and that precluded the possibility that I could get a monthly book. So it was difficult until uh, that Spider-Man Scarlet Witch story came out to make a living with comics. And that's why doing advertising art was so helpful because um, this might not impress people in this day and age, but back in the mid seventies, I would work at an advertising agency doing storyboards and they would pay $20 an hour. And it would take me about four days to earn $20 in comics. Yeah. So that was great. Um, I never had the luxury of a monthly book, which means 
Right. I would try to line up two and three jobs at the same time and just hope I could keep them coming in while I was working on the ones I already had. Uh, the uh, the ability to market yourself in that way. And I've interviewed some of your contemporaries, uh, you know, Bob McLeod and June Brigman, and I hear some of those same types of stories, the uh, the necessity of having other work coming in while you're yep. doing the busy work. Uh, in, in fact, the podcast that's coming out just before yours, uh, it's kind of an all handbook podcast. And we had Elliot R. Brown on and talked a lot. And I, I, I shared like uh, when I was working on the handbooks, I might put in 12 hours to get a single page done and you'd get 20 bucks per page. <laughs> so <laughs> it would equate to like 50 cents an hour by the time you're all done. Right. Right. Uh, on, did you want to answer the same question? Just like, uh, yeah, yeah, what's it well, like to make it in this hustle nowadays? Yeah. Well, first I had a question for Sandy. First of all, I'm a big fan of your artwork, oh, Sandy. So you. it's really an honor to be on the podcast with you. Um, so you mentioned um, working in advertising. I know you've done so many different kinds kinds of art beyond comics, like t-shirts, album covers, uh, medical illustrations, website <laughs> design, architectural renderings. Wow. So I just, I was wondering if you, what it was like for you to shift gears between those art genres and styles. Um, well, that's a great question. Uh, I started to branch out when I left New York. And when I did leave New York, this was about 1990. Um, I sensed that the comic book market wasn't going to be too healthy, and indeed it did crash. And uh, One of the reasons I felt comfortable leaving New York is that I felt like I could keep up my contacts enough, even though it's not as good as being in New York and going to theaters face-to-face. -face. What I hadn't anticipated is that getting out of New York and going to a relatively small city like Athens, Ohio, where I'm living, would open up all sorts of other possibilities because it's a small town, which means there aren't a whole lot of commercial artists, cartoonists competing for the same work. And I think the first non-comic book jobs I got, uh, first was a t-shirt and another was a CD cover. And I loved that opportunity. And it probably wouldn't have happened in New York when there's so many other people competing for that job, specializing in those kind of jobs. And all of a sudden, I could bring in other artistic influences that I couldn't for comics. And I really think that opened me up as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would think that's true. You know, trying your hand at other things, it's just going to feed into what you really love doing as well. And, and just broaden what you see as possible when you get back into comics. Right. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so for me... Um, you know, making ends meet, right? That was the question. So, uh, so I, you know, I do indie comics and even though I have worldwide publishers, I haven't really made a lot of money on that because they don't give you an advance for most of the companies, um, the indie comic companies out there. You, you just put the book together. Um, and if you have to pay for a colorist or an artist, uh, Jason and I split everything 50, 50 on the book. So we pay for everything together. He draws it and then, you know, I write it, he draws it. And then I do, basically the management of it for us schedules and all that stuff. And then we have the, um, the publisher and then we get royalties, you know, based on the sales, but that's how most companies work. You know, you have to get to like a Marvel or DC or, um, I think aftershock actually gives you uh, money up front, but most don't. So, um, I'm fortunate because uh, I've been an editor and a writer a long time. I broke into comics late. 
So which I'm glad I did because I think I'm a much better writer now than I was when I was younger. So, you know, I worked for the American Library Association and I was in charge of periodicals and books and stuff for them. And it just got to the point where I didn't really want to work in an office anymore because I couldn't I couldn't do anything creative. I didn't have time for it. And so I just ended up leaving that. And fortunately, I have a wife who makes a lot of money as a structural engineer. <laughs> so, um, and she's been so supportive because she knew that I just wasn't happy working in that office. Um, and so that's really helped a lot. And then I just started a freelance business, you know, doing editing and stuff. So I've done a lot of other things like Sandy, you know, he's done medical illustrations and architectural stuff, not something you probably thought he was going to be doing. Same thing for me. You know, I've written about toilets. I've written about uh, tornadoes. You know, I've written about all kinds of different things um, because some of those industries pay a lot more money than, than comics will. So, um, yeah, so I supplement that um, with doing some other editorial jobs, other writing jobs. Um, I'm starting to try to get out of that now because I would like to just do comics full time. Um, so I've kind of cut back on that a little bit more so I can work on putting out more material. But yeah, that's how I really do it. I know it's a lot harder for artists though, like Sandy, because especially if you're doing a monthly book, like my buddy Jason Muir, who draws our book, he um, he can do a page a day. So he's pretty fast, but still he's just drawing all that time. He doesn't have time to do anything else. Right. So to make money, you know, he has to take a break in between arcs and then do other projects. He does graphic design and things like that. So, you know, that can be tough for an artist. For a writer, I can write multiple books within a month and then I can still probably do some other things. But for an artist, it's a lot, it's a lot harder. And you can only do that one book, probably, you know, maybe yeah. you do a cover here and there, but so it's a lot more difficult to make money. That's why you see a lot of these Kickstarters come up. And even if you have a, a worldwide publisher, you might still do a Kickstarter to help pay for stuff on the front end. I've uh, I've published two books and it was the same. I had to put my own money into the resources and then I made just enough money back to break even. And then I made a documentary and it cost me 10 times more and I made no money back. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes you just do things because you're passionate about it. Uh, so Sandy, I have some focused questions for you. And if you need any guidance here, let me know. But I, I, I assume the ones I'm asking will spark memories. Uh, tell us what the crusty bunkers are. Well, uh, for those who don't know, that was a name given to uh, an amorphous group of artists who shared space with uh, Neil Adams at Continuity Studios. Neil did a lot of work other than the comics which had his name appearing in the credits. And some of that was advertising work like the storyboards I was doing, but a lot of it was comic books that would come in which either needed inking or had to be produced quickly but they didn't need Neil's full attention so you couldn't make a roster of the crusty bunkers at any one time because the members were always changing the story is basically uh perhaps it'd be a John B job that came in and Neil was the principal inker but maybe about four other artists who happened to be running space there at the time would pitch in. And partly it was done to alleviate the amount of work Neil had to do. Part of it was just deadline pressure. And not all of them, most of them were about my age, eager to get into the business, 
and doing that kind of work was really good to help help them learn the business, learn how to do backgrounds and how to use a pen and how to make your style blend in when that was necessary. Uh, and tell us where the name Krusty Bunkers comes from. I think it's fun. You know, you might know that more than I do. I've always, for some reason, the impression I got is like a crusty layer of ink sitting over a page. But where the bunker might come in, I really don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I've heard different legends along the way. Uh, we do see a lot of this in uh, even modern books. For those of you that are reading credits and comics often, you'll see studios that represent inkers or letterers. Uh, so you'll see, you know, uh, VCs, uh, Joe Caramagna working on this book, that type of thing you'll see quite often in the print still. Uh, so the formation of a studio when you have regular art coming through or companies and you get known as a resource that can be used well, I think... Uh, is something that a lot of places have done over the last uh, decades. And the Krusty Bunkers is one of the earlier examples uh, I know of that, even though it sounds like something out of Mad Magazine. <laughs> no, it does harken back to the golden age of comics when most of the comics were produced by what was considered sweatshops. Um, a publisher would go to one of these shops and say, hey, I need you to fill in 64 pages of art for my issue and maybe about Five different artists and writers would all contribute to that, usually anonymously, and they would create a package and ship it out. Uh, tell us a little bit about Neil Adams himself, if you will. We are getting up. Uh, we are getting up to Neil's run, his classic run on the X Men. Uh, on our podcast, we're just getting. I think in like two more episodes, we're going to get to his first issue. It's gorgeous and wonderful. And tragically, of course, we lost Neil just this year. Uh, tell us a little bit about Mr. Neil Adams. Uh, a very um, controversial figure, uh, mostly because he had such a big impact on the industry. Um, I'm sure almost everyone listening to this podcast knows something about his history, has read his comics. Um, he, one of the best things he ever did, and he did a lot of good stuff, was opening up that studio, Continuity Studio to virtually any young artist who was serious about getting into the business. And he nurtured a lot of careers. He really helped guide, oh, just in the 70s, probably a dozen of some of the top professionals of the day, Terry Austin, Bob Wyacek, many others. And that was invaluable. And it was a real act of generosity. He would spend time with these people. He's one of these artists who work, produce so much work, you would think, how does he find time to do anything else? But he would find the time in his day to look at these guys, see their work, he became a father figure to a lot of them. And um, since I didn't rent space and I wasn't in day-to-day -day contact, I don't think I really felt the same way, but he took time with me. He took time to, he was responsible for getting my first script at BC um, Comics. The story behind that is he had an arrangement back in the 70s with DC Comics. When he found someone who he thought was promising, he would send him up to DC and they would get a script on the condition that Neil Adams would ink it. And therefore, the people there at DC knew it was going to be good, even if the pencils were rotten and this kid wasn't ready for the work, Neil Adams would be able to save it. 
And that's what got my foot in the door at DC. Uh, when you say he was controversial, uh, tell me a little bit about what made him controversial, do you think? I think the one thing which I could point to was his ego, something a megalomaniac. And uh, it's funny because he didn't really have to exaggerate his role uh, in terms of the important things he had done in comics, but he tended to do that, and he tended to let people know that he did it. So um, outspoken. Very outspoken, yeah. But such a champion for creators' rights, Absolutely. and he would always like say something about it. And he he helped so many people to to understand what their rights should be. I love that about him. You know, there's an interesting story behind that because as he was championing those rights, he would tell young artists, "Don't use the company paper to draw, because you don't want them to have any ties to the to the work you're doing." That's how fierce he was in finding any way to champion those rights. Mm -hmm. Wow. We're going to have a lot of conversations about Neil this next year. When we look at the 60s artists uh, as they are represented in X-Men, Jack Kirby in early X-Men was so celebrated as he was in everything, on the page at least, but was not always treated great by Stan Lee. Uh, and Roy Thomas comes in and we see the regular pencils of Werner Roth and Don Heck most consistently, but they never seem celebrated. They're just kind of mentioned on the page. Uh, then Jim Steranko pops in for two issues and he's widely celebrated. They're like, oh my God, look how amazing this is. Even in the, even in the text boxes when they introduce Steranko. Uh, when Neil Adams first shows up in the X-Men, uh, I think the, the bottom blurb under his name says something like introducing the penciling wizardry of... Neil Adams. Uh, and Steranko and Adams both seem to be given a lot of free reign, like draw whatever you like in whatever way you like. Uh, but the others, uh, Werner Roth and Don Heck specifically, were the more company men who were like very micromanaged and like told to do things a particular way. Uh, it's an interesting thing when you uh, when you take these first 66 issues of the X-Men before the book got canceled and kind of put it all in one place like that. Uh, Sandy, do you have any thoughts on that before we move forward? Um, yes. At the time... I didn't think much of Werner Roth's pencils. They seemed a little dull and as you said, sort of company style. Um, I've reassessed him. He's a very good storyteller. He's, it's really fine work. The stories were uninspired. Um, I think the reason why both Steranko and Adams were given such a long leash was the book was dying. They basically said, hey, we have got to do something to revive it. So it wasn't like a high stakes situation. It wasn't selling half a million copies every month and that's what give the the uh, made it possible for those issues i also think that Ster i heard it said that stranko didn't um value the work he did for the x-men very highly he seemed to be doing that, that as a favor for stan lee so you were brought into marvel during a time when there was a lot of kind of creative freedom and in my understanding if i'm getting my timetable right uh, Jim Shooter took over as editor-in-chief right after that. And then there was a lot of micromanagement and a lot less creative freedom. Were you there during that changeover? Um, I left just as it happened. Okay. Uh, yes, the 80s were great. It introduced a lot of um, new artists in the field who were finding their own style there. Um, but when he was booted out, I really felt uh, the presence of the corporate hand more than I had before. And that's another reason why I left. The atmosphere in the office itself had started to change. And 
started to feel more like the DC office, which was always much more conservative. And um, yeah, I, it, Jim Shooter is another controversial figure, but I'm, I feel he was booted out unfairly. Yeah, there's a lot of history there, and it's worth a, for our readers. There's there's a couple books we've referenced, uh, uh, of course. Uh, my favorite being All of the Marvels by Doug Wolk that covers kind of Marvel's history as a company. It's an interesting thing. Uh, uh, Sandy and, uh, well, actually for all three of you, do you recall the first X-Men story you ever picked up as a fan? And second question, uh, who are some of your favorite X-Men characters? Uh, we'll go in the sort order of Sandy, Marquezon, and then Gabriella. Okay. This will probably startle you guys, but I was probably in third and fourth grade, or fourth grade, and I picked up the issue that introduced the Juggernaut. Oh, and so that, uh, like X-Men 13, Juggernaut's first appearance. Around there, around there. Um, and that cover is indelibly etched into my memory, really powerful. Um, and I read that through the Kirby run and oh, probably for about another 20, 30 issues. And then got back into it with Neil Adams' first X-Men. That was my first exposure to his work. Which I believe is number 56 off the top of my head. Uh, we love Juggernaut on this podcast, but uh, his first appearance, although carrying a strong sense of menace, we also laugh because he looks like a potato. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he looks indomitable. You know, force of nature. Do you have a favorite uh, X-Men character, uh, hero and villain, maybe? Um. Oh, that's tough. Well, I remember shortly after the Juggernaut, I was introduced, the Sentinels were introduced. The Sentinels, absolutely. I loved them as a kid. And again, I'm not, I didn't keep track of the X-Men all that well once it hit the 80s. But, um, oh, it sounds cliched, but I'd have to go with Cyclops. He was such a tortured character. Sure. You uh, you give the answer that's opposite most of my guests. They're like, I started in the 80s and I've never read the 60s stuff. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marquezon, uh, do you want to take the same questions? Sure, yeah. It was X-Men uh, 251. So uh, it has like a Wolverine on the cover. He's pinned to an X-Cross in the rain. Just a really like simple, powerful image by uh, Mark Silvestri. Yeah, crucifixion of Wolverine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I got an X-Men toward the beginning third of of chris claremont's run his legendary run when uh, mark silvestri and uh, jim lee drew the book so this was cool i loved this particular issue because they set up shop in the reaver's old base which was like this high-tech headquarters disguised as an old abandoned town in the australian outback and the reavers were this crazy team of cyborgs that were they were dedicated to destroying the x-men we'll so get the there We'll get there eventually on the podcast, but Claremont brought in, and he, he basically killed the X-Men and moved them to the middle of nowhere, but then he brought in threat after threat after threat that were all brand new and all incredible. Mm. This is where Genosha comes from and the Reavers and uh, yeah. the, the Adversary and so many incredible, wonderful stories. Uh, sorry to interrupt, man. Go ahead. No worries. Yeah, no, I love that the Reaver storylines would suck me in because um, they had this mutant teleporter, the uh, indigenous Australian gateway. gateway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he, he would transport them uh, all around for uh, missions in the world. So that, that was pretty cool. So that's like my favorite lineup of X-Men. If I ever was fortunate enough to write like an X-Men book, I'd love to like revisit that time period when they were in the Outback. Um, so yeah, that's my first one. I actually have it framed 
Um, I just moved uh, back to Chicago from Hawaii, so I got to have to find that. But I have a lot of my first comics framed, and that was on the first one. So, um, and I actually just uh, talked to Chris Claremont for like twenty five minutes at C two E two in Chicago, which is great. Um, and talked about that that book. So yeah, um, my favorite X Men character, Wolverine, was really like the first character I got into because his book, his solo book, was coming out around the same time. But I also really love Rogue. I just love that she has uh, these amazing powers and you can't touch her, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like how they played with that o- o- over the years. So I would go that. And Mohawk Storm is pretty pretty good too because I, I got the Mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you're uh, a set of lovely contradictions for me, Marcuson, as I'm getting to know you. Like the metalhead guy with the Mohawk, but you're also like very polite and mild-mannered and like talking about unicorns <laughs> makes me happy <laughs> well it's about killing unicorns <laughs> fair much more metal <laughs> uh gabriella same question yeah so the first comic i think i read like sat down and read it didn't just like read parts of it or learn about it was days of future past um and it was way before the movie came out, like several years. And I think I remember really being like kind of confused because in the, I was exposed to the movies first and in the movies, Kitty Pride was so overlooked, but in Days of Future Past and in a lot of X-Men comics, she's like a big character. Like, like she's like her own person who like, has plots that revolve around her and i'm so disappointed that the movies haven't really done that she was sort of appeared in the first one and then was brought in as a love interest and in like the second or third one with a different actor and then it was like she was just sort of there on the side um and i so I, days of future past is still my favorite um and i really like kitty pride i do really like magneto which is very controversial but I don't know what can i say i'm i'm a controversial person i guess i think it's it's like such an interesting relationship to look at charles and magneto and see like kind of the two different ideologies and how neither i don't think either one of them is really like universally right but they both have their own reasons for thinking what they think and they're both right to them and i think that's pretty genuine and pretty honorable here in a really difficult situation in the world that they live in. So I don't really, I don't cast a lot of blame on Magneto. I do on Charles, but that's, that's a personal thing. I just don't like him. So I mean, he can be a dick sometimes. I know. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really a fan of his like school of child terrorists, but mm -hmm. that's a, that's a whole like diatribe I can go on, but I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll get there eventually, but uh, Claremont did so many brilliant things as, as a writer. He took the themes that were explored in the 60s and then made them very real. Uh, Kitty Pride mm-hmm. alone, he brings in uh, a youthfulness, uh, someone to whom this world is new. And then one of the first stories he tells 
is this hardened, tortured version of her from the future that shows this dire place where mutants are exterminated in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's an intense set of storylines, and it's really, really brilliant. Yeah, I love Kitty Pride. Um, yeah. I love that his X Men run just because they felt like family to me. You know, even reading it now, they still feel that way. So when when I write, actually, that's an influence on me because I, I want characters that you can easily identify with and connect with right away. And I think Claremont was a master at doing that. And mm-hmm. um, I don't always see that in comics. So I definitely um, think about that with every story that I write. He's a game changer. He changed the whole industry, frankly, much like Stan Lee did 20 years before. Uh, Sandy, when I uh, when I am about to ask these questions, I want to be clear. I've only read your Marvel work, so I'm not familiar with your art in other places. And, uh, you know, Gabriella or, or Marquezana, if you're familiar and want to ask questions, please feel free. Uh, but in reviewing some of your Marvel stuff, I'm so impressed uh, with the way that you draw your landscapes and your characters and your facial expressions. Uh, your Marvel fanfare stories are my favorite, but I always uh, I always really love when the Scarlet Witch, as an example, is portrayed as both feminine and powerful at the same time. Um, you're one of my favorite artists on her, and she's had a lot of pencilers over the years. Uh, yeah. you're, your Spider-Man, even your little Clea story, or the way you did Daredevil versus the dogs. Uh, like, you've got some great stuff. Tell us a little bit about your art style, if you had to classify it, and what you enjoy working on. Um, when it comes to the comic book work, I think you could probably still see my primary influences. Um, I was picking up DC Comics, probably starting about 1970, and I started to see this name, Bernie Wrightson. And he blew me away, and I've followed his career through the fanzines and into um, Swamp Thing. And it didn't take too long before I discovered that he had his influences, including Frank Rosetta. And I discovered the EC artists. And primarily, I think it was that school um, that came from initially Alex Raymond and his work on Flash Gordon and evolved into the 50s to Frazetta style, and then Jeff Jones and Bernie Wrightson. So that's what you see primarily. But there's also Al Williamson, and his work on EC showed an incredible knowledge and sensitivity to the human figure. And that influenced me a great deal. It really told me, I got to learn anatomy, I got to feel comfortable with the real human figure before I start doing exaggerated superheroes your uh your work reminds me in some ways and this is an absolute compliment of june brigman's pencils uh, oh, thank you. you're very different from each other but the way that you approach facial expressions uh the way that the stuff you're drawing feels really real and then you wind up in some magic land where everything's flipped around and suddenly it's all fantasy uh, i love the balance of that there's a there's kind of a, a hominess to it. I don't know the right way to describe that, but when I look at your pencils, I get this like, ah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good, good feeling. Uh, and June Brigman's pencils do a lot of the same for me. Uh, so that's absolutely a compliment. I adore her. Oh, no, I, I, I love her work too. I think there's a real sensitivity there. You don't know, a lot of comic artists. But it's funny you should say that you had this kind of homey feel to my work. Um, probably the one artist writer I would point to in comics, which had the most impact on me is Hal Foster. Mm. And when I see his Prince Valiant work, especially 
an original or a very good scan from an original. I think I've almost used the same words. It's like coming home. There's something so human about it. I can immediately relate, not just the story, but in the art as well. I don't think I've heard the name Hal Foster in 20 years. That No, it's a good thing. I just, uh, I haven't thought about Prince Valiant or that stuff in a long time. Sandy's facial, your facial expressions are are amazing. I think that's what really humanizes the characters because you can, you can just looking at your art, you can tell how they feel. You know, you don't even need words there. You you can just tell. And I I think that is like one of the greatest hallmarks of of an amazing artist. So that is a big compliment. Thank you, Marcus. You're welcome. Uh, Marcus, when I first uh, talked to you about this episode and I said, do you know who Sandy Plunkett is? I was ready to explain who Sandy Plunkett was, but you already (laughs) knew. uh, uh, And you were like, yes, let's do this. Uh, Tell me, uh, tell me where you know Sandy from initially yourself. Um, well, I'm a huge fan of uh, Conan the Barbarian, and so what wow. we were talking about, I actually just picked up, I'm trying to fill in the entire run of the Marvel stuff, which is like 275 issues plus yeah. the annuals. So I think I need maybe 50 issues left. So I had known his stuff. I lost a lot of comics in a flood, like we were talking about earlier, actually, yeah. when, when I lived in New York with my parents. So I'm trying to fill them in. And one of my, the issues I really liked was 251 that Sandy did. And I, I think you drew it. I think you actually wrote it too, right, Sandy? I did tight layouts and I wrote it. Uh, there was a penciler who did the finishes. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, like, uh, what was that like to uh, write and draw uh, Conan? Um, I love the character. It was first drawn in because of those Frazetta covers. Um, it was some of the first writing I did. And I appreciate the fact that you really like that issue because I think I wrote only about two or three Conans. And I just thought I had missed it. I hadn't really gotten the character. And, you know, I I can say, well, you know, it takes a while to get a feel for a character. Um, But still, I I wish I had really done more of the Howard character. The second issue I did, I think the plot was good. But once it was finished, I realized I had just written a Prince Valiant story. Mm -hmm. It's Mm. a mistake. Yeah. I'm doing a I'm doing layouts on a graphic novel right now, and I am no artist, let me tell you. But I'll be sitting uh, I'll be sitting and working on storyboarding, and it's I'm, I'm doing my memoir. I'm doing my own story, so I have these big feelings like anger and sadness, and I'll get emotional, and then I'll show my husband my like little stick figure drawings later, and he's like, "Yeah, great work, babe." <laughs> like I was like, I was crying, and you're rolling your eyes at my stick figures, <laughs> which, is, uh, wow. which is a lot of fun. Well, I can't wait to read that. Yes. Well, I, there's a there's a memoir version. We're just looking at a, a graphic novel version. Uh, we'll okay. see. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. We'll chat offline if you like. Uh, uh, Sandy, I was going to ask you since sure. we talked so much about your Marvel stuff and just talked about Conan. What was your favorite Marvel character to draw? Um, or you still draw? You might still draw some of the Marvel characters. I'm, sure, I get a lot of commissions. It's part of how I make my living. Um. I enjoyed Spider-Man, but the problem is, to me, and everyone has a different answer for this, it's Ditko, that is the Spider-Man artist. Mm-hmm. And something which is so peculiar, I find, is that you cannot really do Ditko figures and make it look right. It was so personal and so stylized, and it looks fantastic when Ditko did it. So I feel this kind of frustration that 
I want to capture some of that feel, but it's hard. Um, I like drawing characters with simple costumes. I, I don't like pulling out the reference in, in you know, that 90s period where all of them had these tremendous shoulder pads and studs sticking out <laughs> right. anywhere. And like so, 70 pouches on their costume. <laughs> oh, I know. It must have been a headache to draw that stuff. So yeah, simple costume like Black Panther mm-hmm. or Ant-Man. That's great. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned too, like Ditko. Now, when you're drawing an established character like that, do you do you feel pressure to... Um, do something that uh, has been established, like a Ditko, like you have a, a reverence for that art. Do you feel pressure to honor that, or or do you really just want to bring your own thing to it, or is it a combination? Um, in terms of Ditko, I was the only one putting pressure on myself. It was it's almost like a personal challenge to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've done other characters, even in the Marvel handbooks, what I try to do is dig away the specifics that other artists have brought to and and find what is it about that character that's made it last what is the heart of that character Mm -hmm. um those handbooks gave me a chance to do that i enjoyed it for that fact so no i don't feel pressure to to meet expectations or to in another style i do want to find what makes that character endearing and internal at the core right exactly uh, I think this is a good transition point as we're talking about characters. Uh, Sandy and Marcuson, both, uh, thank you for sharing some of your professional journey. Uh, and Gabrielle, as always, for your insights. Uh, it's really lovely to get to know you both. So uh, I want to take a moment to introduce, uh, I, I'm trying to cover the X-Men stuff in the 60s. And they appear in two issues of the Fantastic Four in a row. But I didn't want to review both because they're both pretty minor spaces. So the issue before this, we're doing Fantastic Four 36 today. In Fantastic Four 35, we get to see Stanley and Jack Kirby uh, give us Charles Xavier and Cyclops for basically two panels. I'm going to tell this story really quickly. If you'd like to go back, it's kind of interesting. Uh, We learn that Xavier has gone to State U or State University in order to test some students to see if they might be mutants. I feel like there's a great untold story here because it's very loosely referenced. Uh, But they're leaving the university as the Fantastic Four arrive. And there's a guy named Dean Menken. He shakes Xavier's hand, introduces them to the Fantastic Four, who, of course, they've already met in previous adventures. Xavier reads Mr. Fantastic's mind and senses his concern about uh, Xavier having a private school. Uh, As they are leaving, Xavier and Scott, uh, Scott basically says, you know, the testing the mutants didn't pan out there. None of them were actually mutants. So, again, I feel like there's some sort of story to be told here. But the, almost the most interesting part of this story is uh, there's a moment as they're walking away where Mr. Fantastic says out loud, Professor Xavier is repu- reputed to be one of our most brilliant scientists, and yet I never see any published accounts of his findings. The dean says, I've heard he specializes in training gifted youngsters. Now, of course, these characters are on the Illuminati together in the future, but there's an interesting thing, and I want to talk about this a little bit before we even jump in today. There's an interesting parallel between the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four are the celebrated family. As we're going to see in this issue, Reed and Sue have just gotten engaged and all these people are celebrating them in the newspapers. They're getting gifts delivered to the door. Uh, Whereas the X-Men are the outcasts. They're the ones who, if a mutant is seen, they get chased down the street. 
the thing can destroy city blocks as he stomps down them and they just pay it off and forgive him and he's still a hero but the x-men screw up at all or are even seen in public and they're often kind of cast aside uh, tell me how you think these two teams relate to each other. And I know it obviously changes a lot in the continuity over the years, but it's a really interesting dynamic between the two of them. Uh, Gabriela, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, you know, I didn't really think about it until you said it the way you did. But it almost reminds me of like, you know, when you're like marginalized and they're like the good ones and then like the not good ones. I feel like that's kind of what this is like. The Fantastic Four, they're exemplary in every way. They're in the spotlight. They're great. They're, they save people. They're heroes, everything. And for really no reason, there's this other much larger group of people who are really like the bad version of the Fantastic Four from the public's point of view. And I just find that really interesting. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a strange and like, incomprehensible kind of like treatment but i think that's kind of i think they're both like an honest rendition in their own ways they're just framed differently and i think that's really interesting that the the fantastic four is so they seem so universally loved except obviously by the people that they fight and the you know villains that they fight but x-men are kind of different because they've been treated differently their whole life and it kind of it reminded me of like honestly like like to draw a parallel like black exceptionalism and how like black athletes are treated very very well and musicians who are successful are treated very very well but the majority of them are still marginalized by the rest of society and so that that's kind of what this reminds me of yeah yeah. Uh, Sandy or Marquezon, any thoughts on that dynamic between the X-Men and the Fantastic Four? You want to go ahead, Marquezon? Sure. I mean, I don't I don't really like the Fantastic Four, to be honest. <laughs> um, I'm brown. I'm a brown metalhead. So like X-Men, I totally identify with them being on the outside. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they ha- just because they have this these genetic powers, you know, basically. The Fantastic Four, to me, is like pop culture it's it's like the music i hate but in superhero form you know so i never really responded well except for the walt simonson room because i just love walt simonson um but other than that i just never really got into fantastic four because um i always felt like they could have done more to help you know they're just hanging out in the baxter building like (laughs) making science and fire and stuff they didn't really they could have done so much more with their celebrity and i think that's the the case for how it is in the real world but i also like that it kind of mirrors the real world you have these celebrities who they can do those things they can destroy shit like you're saying and it doesn't matter bounces off x-men you know they jaywalk and oh we we have to stop these muties Mm -hmm. so um yeah i've uh, i've always been more of an x-men fan just because of that you know because i I was always different um, growing up, and uh, so I identified with that. Um, the Fantastic Four, obviously, those characters are good people in the comics, but um, yeah, I felt like they just could have done maybe a little bit more. <laughs> but I always have that feeling now when it comes to celebrities. And there's things we don't see. You know, you, not every, not all the good stuff gets published, sure. right? It's the bad stuff. So I'm sure there's a lot of celebrities that do 
good for, for, for people that are in need, but, um, and it's yeah. worth the, it's worth going back to listen on the podcast. We covered Fantastic Four twenty eight, in which the X Men are tricked by the Puppet Master and the Mad Thinker into attacking the Fantastic Four. And even there, there's a dynamic where you kind of assume that the X Men are the bad guys uh, before you before you realize they're good. In this era, however, we also are going to see in this issue that the X Men are invited to the Fantastic Four's engagement party and then later to their wedding. There's also the long tie-in of Reed and Sue have the child, Franklin Richards, who for many years is believed to be a mutant. Turns out in recent continuity, he is not. But even in current issues of the X-Men, there's uh, Professor X has recently deleted knowledge of a particular weapon out of Mr. Fantastic's brain. So, uh, and plus the Illuminati. So there's some interesting connections, even a couple limited series exploring the dynamics between these two teams. Uh, so this is kind of a fun place to visit. Uh, there's not a lot of X-Men in the issue we're about to cover. It's it's mostly 60s wonderful nonsense, but, <laughs> but uh, it is an interesting dynamic. Uh, Sandy, any thoughts before we jump in today? Um, it's pretty interesting. I, th I think you put your finger on it, um, that we have two contrasting groups, and that dynamic in itself is pretty interesting. But I have a question for you other guys. Um in the first iteration of the X-Men, they were facing this prejudice because they were mutants. And what made it obvious that they were mutants is they had superpowers. But the Fantastic Four got their powers through passing through a cosmic ray belt. But how did the public at that time distinguish between superheroes who had acquired their powers through science and the ones who had acquired it simply through birth. Yeah. I, I'll take that first if that's okay. I, I've actually given this a lot of thought over the years. If you look at the way different immigrant groups in America have been treated, certain people from certain countries seem to be treated well and others are treated very poorly. And there almost just seems to be a cultural understanding that if you're a mutant, we're going to go after you. But if you got your powers some other way, it's okay. Uh, mutants also are required, like many people from different ethnicities or skin colors or, or cultural heritages or sexual orientations or gender identities. It's almost like we're required to wear that label. Like, I'm not just a dad of kids. I'm the gay dad with a husband and who has two kids. It's a, it's a thing that always makes me stand out. And so people kind of look. And mutants, I think there's almost uh, that, that kind of prejudice, uh, the way it tr is translated in the books and the way the, uh, the X-Men are often celebrated by people who have felt different or disenfranchised is they've had to define themselves by this. They have to band together. Uh, there, are, there are massive robots sent to hunt them down. There are concentration camps built to put them into. Uh, and you don't see that storylines with most other groups of heroes or people who got their powers in other ways. Uh, it's almost, it's just an interesting thing. It's uh, one group is culturally accepted and the other is, is very disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. uh, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I have some thoughts on it. I mean, that's a little different take. I think it's, it comes down to like jealousy really because fantastic for normal people who got powers. So people can identify with that because, well, maybe I could get that and become that. Whereas mutants are people that just have inherent abilities and it's like, Oh, that's different. That's strange. That's weird. I can't, I can't get into that. So I think it's about the way it happened, you know, it's like, uh, Oh, fantastic four. I could become them. I could be that, those, those people, they were just normal people and they became something else. X-Men. No, those X-Men are, they're just, they're just strange. They're anomalies. They're 
They're, they shouldn't be. They're, they're abominations that happened, you know? Fantastic. Well, you know, I'll, I'll throw in another thought there. Um, I have a perspective of someone who's reading the X-Men and Fantastic Four when I was a very impressionable kid, third, fourth, fifth grade. And it might be sort of lost to history, but the first issues of the X-Men were really pretty dark. If you're a 10-year-old, think of the powers they had. Cyclops had this last ray, but he had to keep it in check. He always had to cover his eyes. That's scary. Um, Yes, the angel could fly, but he had to disguise these wings when he went into public, and the beast looks like a beast. And I think that mm, the fact that Lee and Kirby were trying to do a dark book naturally lent itself to mean that the outside world would see them as somewhat monstrous characters. Yeah, they're a little creepy, actually, in their yes. first two, when you look at the costumes. Uh, Gabriella, any thoughts on that idea of uh, disenfranchisement? Yeah, you know, it's not to make everything about disability, but it's what I do, so I'm going to do it. Um, it reminds me so much of the way that ableism affects people who are born with their disability versus people who have been in accidents who get it later in life. Um, often if you talk to people with, um, like I was born with my disability, so I've always, always experienced it. I've never known what it's like to walk. I've never known what it's like to be like, quote unquote, normal. And my experience with how people have treated me is night and day different from somebody who was in an accident who becomes paralyzed. Sure. Even though functionally we might have the same abilities, we might be able to go to the same places or not go to the same places. We might, you know, have the same opportunities, but the ways that people's experiences with disability differ is actually really similar to this because I think when you I'm going to say normal a lot, but I don't mean it in like the like I'm saying it. I'm talking about society. But um, when you live your life as like a normal person, quote unquote, you end up being able to relate to like other normal people in a much easier way because you sort of speak their language. Um, but when you're born with a disability, you're born with a mutant gene or born with whatever makes you marginalized, it's much different. You you don't really ever have that sort of connection to the rest of everybody. And I just find that really interesting. I there's a there's a book that they give um parents of kids with disabilities or they used to. Um but it is basically about um these people who speak a language that is slightly different than the language everybody else speaks. And so they live their whole life having difficulty understanding other people and they just think it's normal. And then they all meet each other and they all speak the same language. And they're like, finally, somebody, like I didn't realize that I was, it wasn't me that was broken. It was the language who just spoke different languages. And I feel like that's kind of what this is like. Fair. I love that we can have this uh, like very thought-provoking discussion before we get into the nonsense. This is a great, great question, Sandy, by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, well, with that, let's jump into our issue today. Uh, back back in the 60s, a lot of characters had like little solo features in two-part books. So we uh, we had books like, uh, like uh, Tales to Astonish, 
and Journey into Mystery and uh, Tales of Suspense. And there were always like little 11 page stories and they would toss out these kind of nonsense villains. It was almost like a Dennis the Menace kind of plot. This Things would get really silly. You get characters like the living eraser and the human pop and the porcupine. <laughs> And some of these characters have gone on to become new villains and some have never been seen since the 60s. Uh, but then you started seeing Stanley pick them up and put them into other books. So we'd see characters that were introduced in these little places uh, who then uh, get bigger. So the four characters who become the Frightful Four in this issue, three of them are pre-established, two of them from the Human Torch's solo tales. One of them is named The Wizard. Uh, his name is Bentley Whitman. He wears a big purple hat. <laughs> And he has anti-gravity technology. And that's basically all you need. Another guy is Peter Petruski, whose name is Pace Pop Pete. And uh, he goes on to become the Trapster. A lot of people know him from uh, later Fantastic Four books. Uh, he's literally a character who has a gun with glue that will be very difficult to break. There was something about glue that they were obsessed with. There's a, there's the old Baron Zemo Master of, Masters of Evil story in the early yes. Avengers where they drop glue on the city and all the citizens are stuck to the sidewalk and the Avengers have to save them. It's it's nuts. Uh, Pace Pop Beat is back. And then we also have the Sandman from uh, the Spider-Man series, who's one of my all-time favorite villains. But in his first appearance, Spider-Man defeats him by sucking him up into a vacuum cleaner. So again, a lot of nonsense <laughs> stories. Uh, and then we get a brand new character, Medusa, introduced in this issue, who will go on to launch the entire race of the Inhumans in the Fantastic Four shortly after this. Madam Medusa. Madam Medusa. And also, I have to correct you on the wizard. He goes by the wingless wizard. In the this wingless issue. wizard. Yes, yes. Occasionally, <laughs> there's, an, there's an alliterative compound put before it. <laughs> Uh, so jumping in today, let's talk about the cover for just a moment. Uh, what are some of your thoughts and impressions about this cover? We see the Frightful Four with giant letterboxes announced sneaking up on the Baxter building. Uh, the thing is getting uh, uh, glued around the hands while the Fantastic Four are inside unaware that the Sandman is sneaking in. The most ridiculous part, Medusa is hanging from her hair, presumably from a helicopter, well, well Pete, Pete is grabbing her by the hair and also hanging. So this is where I came up with the extra strong neck muscle requirement. Uh, tell me about this cover. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I love it. I think it's great. I love the hair. That's my favorite part of it, obviously. Um, I think I thought it was really funny when I first looked at it, like before I looked closely. Sandman looks really weird. Like he kind of looks like there's like rocks in his sand and that sort of made me think like oh they're really gonna do like whatever the opposite of the fantastic four is like he kind of looks like the thing but with a human face i think it's great i love the way it looks <laughs> uh sandy and mark is on any thoughts yeah um i haven't done quite that analysis but another thing which uh buys logic is that the thing is having his hands pasted, but he's behind a pane of glass. Uh huh. Exactly. How does that work? <laughs> um, I think I think he might be leaning out the window, and his head is in front of the upper pane of glass. Is kind of how I interpreted it. But it doesn't look like he's behind the window when you first look. Yeah. Um, it's kind of vintage Fantastic Four, and I rem I'm looking at a black and white copy now, and I remember joining the color code, uh, color version of it. It's fine. It, it it does its job. It introduces these characters. If I if I had the original, it would be right up in the wall on my bulletin <laughs> board. 
the Fantastic Four in blue, the Frightful Four in purple. That's how you know they're evil. <laughs> yes. uh, Sandy, walk us through the first five pages of the book. Tell us what happens. Oh, let me talk about the cover. Though. Oh, I'm sorry, Marcus. Oh, yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, first of all, I have no idea what Medusa's hair is attached to. Like you, you, you talked about Chad. I love that part. Cause it could be anything. Maybe it's a cloud. Could be a cloud. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be surprised because thing can just go right through a window. Um, I love that the frightful four is trying to sneak their way into the Baxter building, but they're clearly failing to do so with any kind of stealth or skill whatsoever. I love that the wizard is flying by the Sandman, apparently just to supervise his work and not actually help to break in. And, uh, but my favorite part about this is that, uh, Mr. Fantastic is all like, he's grabbing Sue by the chin. He's like, here's looking at you kid type thing. Well, Johnny is either looking at them thinking what the fuck, or he's looking at the thing being attacked by this group and not doing anything. It's he's, so crazy. He's wondering how the thing is able to phase through glass all of a sudden. That's thing. <laughs> He's like, wow, you have that power now? Maybe you're a mutant. I don't know. And I love the text on it because the text is huge on this thing. It's really great. And very asymmetrical. I think these guys are meant to be like the counter of the Fantastic Four as well, which is interesting. So you've got, you know, Mr. Fantastic's counter is Wizard, who's the super genius. Thing versus Sandman. Invisible Woman and Medusa have, you know, the powers every girl wants, which is to either make yourself fade away or to have real strong hair. <laughs> and then the counter for the Human Torch is somehow a guy with with paste. <laughs> well, I love that what she's attached to with her hair is invisible. We don't know. <laughs> uh, all right, Sandy, walk us through uh, walk us through the story on the first five pages. Let's hear uh, just a quick summary and some of your thoughts on what takes place. Sure. Um actually a lot going on in those first five pages, but I really appreciate it because you did some of my work for me, which is saying that um, three of the characters are being, uh, have already been introduced and it's only Medusa that we get to see for the first time. So as you said in the beginning of the podcast, uh, we meet the Fantastic Four in this issue just as uh, Reed has announced his wedding engagement. They've made that public. Um, I love the splash page because Kirby has divided it basically in half. And one side has is, is fairly quiet, and we see the torch, Reed, and Sue. The other side is this scrum of press people, and the thing is holding them back. But it is so densely drawn. There's four or five, six layers of perspective, you know, maybe about 10 figures squeezed in there. Kirby and Chick Stone make it absolutely readable. And that's a real trick to pull off. Um, page two is- what a, I, I just want to note the reporter or the, the guy with the camera that's literally climbed on top of the thing <laughs> to get a better shot. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a really great piece of storytelling. That's awesome. Uh, the second page and the next two panels after that are basically um, characterization. And it's done very well. Uh, even though Reed and Sue have just announced this engagement, they're getting all sorts of engagement presents already. One of them turns out to be the Yancey from the Yancey Street Gang, and it turns out to be a bomb. And of course, it's a gag, and it turns into be flowers. And what I like about that is 
Lee already knew the pleasure that fans took in having uh, characters and ideas continually reintroduced to the storyline. There's something very satisfying about um, even getting these few panels with reference to the Yancey Street gang. Um, something, uh, something Mark Waite establishes in the uh, 2000s is uh, a lot of the jokes that were played by the Yancey Street gang in the 60s were actually played by the Human Torch against the thing but he would just sign at the Yancey Street Gang. Ah. So if you read it that way, the Human Torch did this himself and it's hilarious. <laughs> you know, really, for five pages, there's a lot packed in here. Um, you, you can dissect the relationship that Thing has with his own image because when the press is leaving, he says, hey, don't you want to take a, a photo of my beautiful mug? Now we all know that Thing hates being the ugly thing and yet, He's playing with that. You know, there's a strange psychology going on there. I love him. He's good. So I, I won't belabor this, but um, middle of the second page, we turn to the introduction of the Frightful Four. Then we go immediately into a flashback, which explains how the, when we last saw the wizard, he was floating out into space, but suddenly he's here again. And that's explained away by a rather improbable explanation where Pastepot Pete snags a jet fighter going by and they hijack that and save the wizard. Um, and on page five, I'm trying to keep this fairly short. Oh, you're um, what, I, what I find really interesting here is that um, the wizard introduces us to Medusa in yet another flashback, and it shouldn't work, but it reads fairly smoothly. And he discovers that she is on an island in the Mediterranean and living in this cave. And the first sight we see of her is just her hair. But it introduces a mythic quality already into the character. Um, she's on an island in the Mediterranean. We kind of assume it might be Greece because they're tapping into Grecian mythology. And even though the rest of the Inhumans weren't introduced for a while yet, the idea that they were going to be mythic and root is already introduced with this character. And that is the end of page five. And they could give her the stone hair, but they're like, let's give her living crazy hair that's bright yeah. red. So it looks like a fire. Her design mm -hmm. is insane, uh, but it's gorgeous. I love it. Have you ever noticed that... Um, I think it was only in this issue. Her costume is vaguely that of a dominatrix. And it's interesting that it's Madame Medusa. That is fascinating. I didn't give that any thought. Um, okay. if, if I had to consider a single favorite moment on these first couple pages, it's one of the guys, it's it's Wizard, Sandman, and Pacepot Pete hanging out. And one of them says, you know, the three of us could be almost as powerful as the Fantastic Four. And the wizard's first thought is, ooh, what if we could find a female? Then we could be a foursome that fights them. And, uh, that, I that wrote that exact of, same thing down. I did too. I did too. I was like, wow. I do I know thought. of a female. Hmm. I haven't uh, heard of a We got to have one. <laughs> uh, Gabrielle, uh, take us through the next five pages. Yeah, so um, they, uh, he goes, I think, to get her, and then, um, oh, the wizard does, sorry, and then uh, we're back in the Baxter building, and there are a ton of gifts that um, Sue and Richard, wait, Breathe Richard, sorry, I don't know why I did that, I had a brain fart, um, 
they uh, are given a ton of gifts and the thing of course is the muscle carrying them on his head and in his arms which seems kind of mean one of them looks like a coffin it looks like a coffin to me the one that he has over his head that he's holding <laughs> it's really really strange it took me a, a minute to be like what is it another prank anyway um so then uh johnny storm is like hey sis i gotta show you this thing i made um i i it's like something really cool that i did for you and she's still being mobbed by the wedding planning people and so she's like yeah not now i'm a little busy and then um he's like well fine and then he demonstrates it for no one but the audience um so what he did was he created some kind of chemical screen that he was able to shoot fireballs through and it became like some kind of colored fireworks <laughs> and all i could think this entire time was he is doing this indoors presumably in my mind it was like in a basement like somewhere kind of hidden and that makes me so nervous from a liability standpoint and a safety standpoint <laughs> it's always to think about all of their neighbors have to have like extreme fire insurance <laughs> can you imagine what insurance would cost i think about that all the time I I mean, think about it, Gabriella. He is a fire hazard the entire time. He shouldn't be flaming yeah. on inside the he's building. A, he's a living fire. Like, you would always be like, well, like, what about the smoke, too? It would have to be everywhere. And the smell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, you see him on page six. He's opening that door. Well, he's on fire. That's, I don't understand. It's crazy. Don't they establish at one point that most of the Baxter building has been treated with a wonderful chemical? called asbestos the baxter the baxter <laughs> building itself not only when it, when it comes to the human torch not only do we get moments where you'll see him like flying someone through the air so he'll be mm. all on fire except <laughs> his hand yes. you get that a lot but you also uh you also get him uh oh i forgot my other thought i'll come back to it in a minute uh and just as a reminder for our for our friends uh sandy if you recall the human torch gets pulled in by the x-men when they fight the juggernaut for the first time yeah uh, they bring human torch in to help them fight juggernaut and then professor x erases his memories at the end like forget us now goodbye mm -hmm. uh, it's nuts <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the beauty of it, you could just say unstable molecules. Like the whole Baxter building could be unstable molecules. It doesn't matter. Torch can go wherever he wants because we've got that. Oh, oh, that was my other thought. Uh, the Human Torch also fights a villain called the Asbestos Man, who later in continuity, they reveal, has gotten cancer from his Houston's uh, asbestos. <laughs> we oh, literally talked about the Asbestos Man in law school. I just graduated from law school last year. They talked about it in one of my classes about how funny that was oh. and how common that was back then to be like mm -hmm. asbestos it does everything it's just so good um yeah so anyway after that um he increases the size johnny storm increases the size of the chemical stream and then makes the fireworks happen outside and um, even though that looks very cool it actually attracts the frightful four so they are like hey um it's just well it's just sandman and um paste pot pete at that point in like a what are they even writing they're in some kind of ship but anyway they see it happen and they're like wow we should just like kill the flame 
power kid, the torch, you know? And so they are like ready to do it. And then the, the wizard comes in. And my favorite part of this is the wizard comes in and he's like, hey, and at Madame Medusa. And Sandman's first response is, oh, she's real? Like as if he made her up, like his girlfriend from Canada that he had to go run and get real quick. Um, And then of course she comes out and I have a problem with her costume. I do see she absolutely does look like a dominatrix. Yeah, that's all I can see now. She's she's in like a gimp suit, but my problem with it, I think it's great, but my problem is it constrains her hair to the back of her head. And so later on, when she has to use her hair, you'll see it in a couple pages. She bends it over, like over the edge of a wedge so that her hair can be used. It's so true. Her hair should be completely free. It's so weird. Yeah. And like Sandman doesn't even have anything on his head. So why does she have to have sense? Right. Well, maybe it's to pr- to protect her modesty or something. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> the other weird thing too is that some of them, two of them have purple costumes, two have pink, but on the cover they're all purple. Sure. Yeah. Like mm. somebody didn't color coordinate this group very well. Well, she also has much cooler hair on the cover mm-hmm. than she does. Like it's red in the comic, but on the cover it's like red and mm-hmm. orange and pink and blonde and like all kinds of different yeah. colors. I'm kind of into um, their blue, pink, purple color aesthetic, though. I, I kind of like it. Yeah, it adds some variety for sure. You can then, tell the uh, difference. And then we get the X Men finally. Yay! Yay! So, yeah, they're all at the um, engagement party of Sue and Reed. And um, Iceman, I think, acknowledges. Yeah, Iceman acknowledges that they have to pretend like they don't know Professor X, which I can't help but think is just. It's a really strange choice. I don't know. That just seems so weirdly complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at that point they still weren't public. He was publicly like famous, but he wasn't connected with the X Men, Professor right. X, right? Right. Okay. So, um, and then in the background you also see the Avengers, and Thor like says congratulations. And I kid you not, when I read it. I read it in Chris Hemsworth's voice because at this point, hearing Thor talk, I just imagined him being like, "Hello, there's times when even like I just I couldn't I couldn't hear it with anybody else." Um, <laughs> then after that, the X Men. We have to, we have to point out Gene and Angel doing the Watusi very quickly. It's, what I didn't even G- see that. Gene and Angel are dancing, and she says, "You do a pretty sharp Watusi for a lad with wings, Angel." <laughs> Uh, it's ad- That's so adorable. I totally missed that. That's right in the middle too. There's a lot going on. I think yeah. Beast is also like doing the radio dial with his foot yep. to change the music. Oh yeah. That's, That's what you right. should do when you're accompanying at someone's house is adjust the volume so much with your toes. In there. Just make your footprints on everything. It's probably safe. Um anyway, and then at the very end, Spider-Man his hand makes an appearance and he reach in and thwips up, reaches in and thwips up a piece of cake and then disappears and is never to be seen for the rest of the issue. Um, and then after that, um, the bad guys come in and land on the roof of the Baxter building and are still not noticed somehow. Um, and then uh, 
we see Madame Medusa leaning over the ledge to allow the use of her hair. Um, so she can turn off the light. <laughs> yeah, that's all she does too. I was like, oh no, she's actually like coming in through the window. It's so creepy. Like her hair is like slithering around the thing, and she just looks light off and then. Things like eyes in that picture well, where the lights getting turned uh, off are hilarious. Well, and that's what wakes yeah. him up. That's the crazy part. The switch yeah. is what wakes him up, but them invading the building doesn't. Well, <laughs> and two seconds before that, Sue comes in and is like, "Hey, we're having coffee." Oh, he's sleeping. <laughs> he's sleeping. But the light switch is like, <laughs> "Oh shit, it's dark." I... <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's he awesome. just maybe he just really did not want to spend time with them, and he wasn't sleeping after all. No. He was like done with that part of the Maybe evening. he needs the lights on because he's scared. Uh, Sandy, what were you going to say a moment ago? Um, we could keep this up all day, but it doesn't really make sense that they turn the light out when Pace Pot Pete is shooting a gun at him, right? You want to see <laughs> yeah. what you're shooting at. <laughs> oh, no, but it says he has a sniper scope that's infrared. Oh. So it doesn't have to be on, but why, why is it better when it's off? That's the real question. Right. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, they they sort of incapacitate um, Ben Grimm, and they, but they do it by pasting his hands together and doing like a gag around his mouth made out of paste. Which now that I say it out loud, sounds really really gross. But I yeah. hope his mouth is shut. Um, but anyway, they 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 like basically handcuff his hands together with glue. But that seems so much more dangerous because he can still clobber them with both hands, you know? Well, then they knock him out with some sleep spray. They do. You know, every villain has some sleep spray. Uh, I want to yeah. check in as we're continuing. Is everybody okay for 10 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Marcus, get us through the next five pages. Yeah. I just want to say we're laughing at some of this stuff, but I love this issue. It's just so much fun. You know, I've never seen so many exclamation marks in my life. Absolutely. Um, it's yeah. It does. It's incomprehensible some of the stuff, but it's fun. Like I really love it, even though I'm laughing at it. So yeah, eleven through fifteen. So the frightful four they continue their secret assault on the FF and they target Sue Storm. So Paste Pot Pete tries to blast Sue with the adhesive power of his paste gun, but she puts up a force field in time. Thankfully, Mister Fantastic arrives on the scene and old wingless is super excited to face him because apparently it's a moment he's been waiting for all his life. But Sandman completely ruins that because he tosses a dirty beach at Reed while letting him know he's in a brand new band called the Frightful Four because he's got to let him know this is our name, this is my team. Reed does not seem impressed and he rolls himself up into a carpet and thwacks Sandy but he can't avoid the adhesive mastery of Paste Pot Pete and his hands get glued to the floor. While his butt is still smothered under sand. That's such an awkward image of him. <laughs> yeah, so strange. In the background, Sue inexplicably waits for her man to tell her what to do. <laughs> Reed gives her instructions and she smacks Pete and wingless with one of the best weapons ever. Force balls. Force balls. Meanwhile, Sandman reforms after being carpet punched. And and meanwhile, times two, Madame Medusa is hanging around in a building. 
who knows from, from where, and finally finds the right window to join the fight. She grabs Sue with her hair, and then Sue and Reed get doused with sleep spray. The bad guys gloat, as they do, and, but little do they know that Alicia is hiding in the kitchen. She finds Sue and finds a flare gun in her tiny belt buckle. I don't know how. <laughs> Meanwhile, Johnny is out checking out a car. He's warned not to breathe too hard on the aluminum engine for some reason because of the fire. So somebody's, you know, conscious of his powers. And then suddenly he gets the FF signal and flames on to go help his family. But that at that very moment, Alicia and her tiny belt buckle flare, flare gun are discovered. She's captured and it seems all hope is lost for our heroes. Uh, Johnny Storm, Johnny Storm giving, uh, that was, that was a lovely performance, Marcus Ad, thank you. Uh, <laughs> the Dirty Beach is my favorite. Uh, but uh, Johnny, Johnny Storm giving us the, uh, the cry of every queer person out there, of course, which is flame on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then I'll wrap up for us quickly. The wizard, instead of, they always have some sort of ridiculous plot. The wizard opens his hat, takes out some anti-gravity devices, and sends Sue, Reed, uh, Ben, and Alicia to float into space, where they will uh, presumably just choke to death. Uh, the human torch returns just in time, but he's got to take on the whole Frightful Four all at once, and they are ready for him. Uh, they trap him in the ship. There's a battle that breaks out. Uh, meanwhile, Reed up in space wraps his entire body balloon style around everyone. Uh, Johnny steals the ship, runs into space, saves the Fantastic Four, and they zoom back to Earth and the Frightful Four escapes. Uh, but uh, uh, there's a moment where the Sandman jumps onto the Fantastic Four ship and turns into like a big old cement block, uh, which is a great use of his powers. Uh, but they save themselves from crashing, and then the Frightful Four runs off. That's kind of a very quick ending to uh, to the issue as it finishes. There's some great moments, including where the Invisible Woman steals Paste Pot Pete's gun and shoots it into Medusa's hair, which is so <laughs> awful for her. Like, a piece of bubble gum would have been oh, sufficient. God. But <laughs> you were talking about these, these super neck muscles she had, but uh, boy, when she washes her hair, let's take a while. <laughs> well, I think she can. She doesn't even have to use her hands. She can just tell her her hair to wash itself. <laughs> uh, this, this is a super fun battle. Uh, in a in a in a like little moment for myself. Back in college, I used to write survivor fan fiction where I would pit Marvel characters in the survival reality competition, like against each other. And That's I did amazing. one. I did one season that was the Sinister Six versus the Frightful Four. So at the time, and this was like early writing days for me, I researched a lot of these characters uh, pretty indelibly, and they're still very dear to my heart. Uh, mm. uh, this was fun, fun, fun. Uh, tell me some of your final thoughts on just uh, what you may have enjoyed most here, uh, or anything that just defied logic for you as uh, as we're wrapping up our issue review. Well, I'll go in first. Um... This isn't referring to this particular issue, but I was really interested to hear Gabriella's take on being disabil having disabilities and the way she related to the X-Men. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a wasp, I'm a white guy, but I still felt like an outsider. And, you know, we won't go into the psychology of that, but even if you are straight and normal, I think Lee was tapping into 
the fact that so many pre-adolescents feel like outsiders. And it's great to get you guys' perspective on that. Well, even like a Stranger Things has just come out and they had that character, Eddie Munson. Like I, I basically was that character, but people are really identifying with him. And he was, a, you know, he's a white guy, but he just happened to be into Dungeons and Dragons and metal and stuff like that. So there's a lot of people that, you know, weren't accepted by their their peers or um, people they knew back in the day. So I like that that X-Men can tap into to that, but it also can tap into like people with disabilities or, or, or brown people like me, you know, people of color. I, I like that, that it could be for anybody who, gay people, you know, for, for whoever um, feels like that they're on the outside looking in. I, I, I really like that. Stan Lee um, was really able to uh, to capture that. Gabriela, do you want to take that question? Yeah, I think also just going on with what we've been saying, I think that's another level of relevance to the fact that the Fantastic Four were treated so much better than the mutants. It really wasn't about the superpowers. It was just society doing what society does and marginalizing people for whatever reason they come up with. And being a mutant is just an easy label to plop onto people that makes them different than you or I. Um, so yeah, I, I really like this story. I'm going to keep my eye on that and the deuce. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> new favorite, new favorite. But uh, yeah, nice. I thought, that was, thought it was good. The band is really fun to read. Sandy, to uh, to piggyback off what you just said, I think Stan back then, anytime he created a character, would add some sort of disability in some constructs. Uh, Spider-Man, you know, carried the burden of guilt and was the science nerd, where Daredevil was literally blind and Tony Stark had the heart condition and Hulk could never lose his temper. Uh, he found this way to help people relate. Doctor Strange couldn't use his hands anymore, right? There's a there's a really interesting through line. And I think that's kind of what changed Marvel from the others. It's what set them apart for a long time there. It's an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, because they had these amazing powers, but there's always something that they had to deal with, even though they had this these amazing abilities. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there, that I'm just going to say really quick, that conversation actually was just happening on Twitter, like, I think last week. And I'm sorry if you can hear my dog barking in the background. Um, a leaf flew by the window, so please wait. <laughs> wants to inform everybody. Um, but somebody was saying, like, wow, it's so great they're having, like, all these disabled characters come into the Marvel Universe. Like, Daredevil and Echo, like, wow, what do you think they're going to do next? And everybody was like, dude, where have you been? Like, Professor X is in the wheelchair. He always has been. Bucky is an amputee. Like, there's so many, you, like, people's view of disability is so small, just like, you know, because people don't understand it. But I was very excited to um, get into X-Men for that reason. It felt like it was speaking mm -hmm. to me. Well, and X-Men specifically, uh, and I could talk about this for hours, but just keeping it to the original team, Professor X lost the use of his legs. Uh, if you add modern continuity, Iceman was a closeted queer character. Jean Grey mm -hmm. had the tragedy of losing her best friend when she was 10. Cyclops is neurodivergent. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a there's actually a lot of stuff mixed in, but a lot of that was added later when you go back and read the original stuff and then they add context. Oh, yeah. uh, it's really mm -hmm. interesting. But, and even the villains, Magneto and Concentration mm -hmm. Camp, you know what I yeah. mean? They all yeah. had these these uh, like obstacles to overcome. You know, they had these these people who hated them or they had some kind of condition that they really had to 
uh, figure out, even though they had great abilities. Yeah, every every character in their way. Toad was the the misshapen freak who was abused a lot. Even Juggernaut. Mm-hmm. We did a we did a review, and this might be interesting for you, Sandy. We did a review of Juggernaut's character where he's attacking the X Men, and I'm like, he's such a jerk. He's attacking, and my friend Anthony Oliveira, who was on the podcast, is dude. He woke up and he just wanted to go home, and they wouldn't <laughs> let him go home. And I'm like, Ooh, fascinating. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, so this has been lovely, everyone. Thank you for the gift of your time and your talents today and just uh, sharing all of this together. Uh, Sandy, I'm a huge fan. Uh, Mark Zahn, I look forward to reading your books. Uh, I plan to order those. Uh, and uh, Gabrielle, I love you as always. You're wonderful. Uh, as we are wrapping up, let us know where we can find you online. And recognizing this episode is going to come out September 4th, is there anything you can plug that's coming out or that you'd like us to look for online or anywhere else? Uh, let's go in the order of Gabriella, Sandy, and then Marcus on. Yeah, sure. You can find me on um, all the social medias under The Girl Who Sits. I have a Facebook page, I have an Instagram, and I have a Twitter. Um, I, I I realize that's not all social media, is it? Wow. <laughs> um, well, I have those three. So, um, And I am also, I stream on Twitch on Saturdays, Sundays, and Tuesdays. So um, if you are that kind of person, you can watch me there. And you can also look at my blog, which is uh, thegirlwhosits.com. And um, yeah, what else was I supposed to say? Oh, that's Got great. It? Yeah. And, okay. uh, and then Gabriella and I have an episode we did for the Patreon recently about the character Kukulkan. That's a great listen. Go give it a listen. Yeah. Kukulkan, who was then featured in the Black Panther 2 trailer. Yes. By the way, just a plug. So do the Patreon thing because <laughs> that's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and then Sandy, do you want to go next? Um, well, you know, I'm old. I don't do a lot of social media. I do have a website. Uh, just tap in my name, artist, you'll find it. I'm on Facebook. Um, not exactly active, but I check pretty often. If you want, send me a friend's request, and I'm pretty sure I'll I'll accept it. Um, I got. I'm I'm starting with a couple projects, but they're still just getting started it's not going to be out in september um if they were more gelled i'd talk about we'll keep our ears open and uh do some ears open. when they come out there you go and then uh marcus on yeah well first thanks for having me on i really appreciate it It was great to meet all of you and uh I'm a huge fan of you sandy and your artwork so real honor for me again to be on with you uh just amazing career um, you can uh, check out my website at marcuson.com. It's M-A-R-K-I-S-A-N. Um, I'm Darth Son on Twitter and Darth Marcuson on Instagram. Um, right now I'm working on By the Horns Dark Earth, which is the follow-up to the By the Horns book that I talked about earlier. Um, if you want to know more about that and stay up to date on By the Horns, you can follow us on social media. It's By the Horns Comic on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can listen to the Metalheads podcast on your favorite podcast app or just go to metalheadspodcast.com to play the episodes. And I've also done some written features um, for the website as well. So, yeah. And then I've got a couple other comic projects hopefully be announced pretty soon. So, yeah, just just working it. Can't wait to get some of these other projects out into the, the uh, to people's hands. So, But uh, right now, Dark Earth, By the Horns, Dark Earth. Uh, I always love putting groups of strangers together and leaving as friends. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm honored to have spent this time with each of you. Uh, you can find me. I keep my own social media private because I've got kids, but you can find me and connect with me on Twitter under Graymalkin PP like podcast or Graymalkin underscore lane on Instagram. 
Uh, we have uh, the week this is being released. Our next episode, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 55. Our featured guest that day is going to be uh, Mr. Sam Humphreys, which I'm super excited about. Uh, and then our Patreon episode that week is going to be uh, the character Unicorn. <laughs> Ironically, Marcus, <laughs> the character Unicorn with my friend Daryl Lawrence. Uh, he's nuts, man. We just finished our research. Uh, uh, he's an old Iron Man villain who shows up in X-Men a couple of times. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Crazy. Uh, I've never read him front to back before. It was fun. So uh, check that out if you'd like. We've also just put up some new t-shirts on the website, including uh, a Seth Martell designed Princess Python t-shirt, which is wonderful. So go look at it if you haven't. Uh, thank you, everybody. We will uh, see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.